Hey everybody, welcome back to Permission to Be. This is part two of our conversation with Tina Strong. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. Or you can just jump in right here. It makes me know never mind as long as you listen. See you on the other side and I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Because we breathe, because yeah. we are, yeah. we are mm-hmm. living testaments and glory to God. And I think that felt so blasphemous, you know, when I first began to entertain that, uh-huh. right? That felt, all of the fail-safes and, the, and the, the fear tactics that were put in place really were effective. <laughs> and I always feel, I feel protective of, you know, my parents and kind of my familial unit with regards to, I still have a tremendous amount of family and friends that are in that the church and in those churches, mm-hmm. I a lot of friends. I'm just saying there are still a lot of folks that yeah, I recognize yeah. and I have to respect and just honor the fact that that's their path and they are doing the best they can with what they, you know, that, that's where they are. And, and I have to, and I don't have judgment towards them with regards to what, where their path is taking them right now. I can say for me, I have never felt more free than to acknowledge something. I I remember, and I almost hesitate to even share this, um, but we're going deep. So here we go. I remember reading Marianne Williamson's Return to Love a few years ago. I I feel that hesitation right now. I love her (laughs) and i am proclaiming it to the mountaintops and i i want to acknowledge to to i think all of my friends who are disabled who have spoken into some of the problematic things with her um and i want to be respectful and honor that and so if this isn't for you you know practice earmuffs here in this moment but i think that she serves a purpose on this earth and she serves a purpose that that gets people through situations. So I welcome mm-hmm. that. And I, and I, I feel you and resonate with that trepidation, even if it's a little various different trepidation, but mm-hmm. as soon as you said the name, I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be, I'll share this and I appreciate that disclaimer. So I'll, I'll, I'll also just kind of co-sign that just one little thing that I read out of that, the book return to love that I actually, that it's, scared me and shocked me and made me put that book down. And I haven't gone back to it yet. That's, that's weird. Um, but it was this powerful to me. And I don't know mm-hmm. if Marianne Williamson said it, or if it came from A Course in Miracles. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, that book is kind of her reflections and a commentary on A Course in Miracles. And I don't know anything about A Course in Miracles. So I don't want to start to speak out of you know, of, of my lane with regards to, I, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a, you know, seminary student. I don't have this background. Yeah. I'm simply saying I read this book. It was written by this woman named Marianne Williamson. It was called a return to love. And in that book, what it said, here's what just changed things for me. It said, you were not born in sin. You were born in love. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. I was, I don't think I had turned 40 yet when I read that. 
But for someone who had been raised their entire life to understand and who believed and internalized that I had, I was born in sin. We were all born in sin. Like sin was the, 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 the starting point. Sin was just ground zero. We came in sin, no choice in the matter. We just got here sinful. We just came out sinful, right? That's then, so from that point, we have so much work to do to crawl out of that in some way. And that's, and in, and in order to create the need for salvation, there has to be a tremendous, there has to, you have to come from that place of being born in sin, right? Because if we were born in anything other than sin, we wouldn't have this tremendous need for salvation. Let me not, mm. preach. let me just kind of speak back to being born in love and how that changed everything. Yeah. I know I, 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 if I am born in love, if you, Becca, and you, Tommy, mm-hmm. are born in love, if we are born in love, we just get to simply be. Yeah. We get, we don't have to prove. We don't have to strive. We don't have to um, anything. We just get to have value in ourselves as who we are and then that and there's nothing mm. that needs to be added to us and nothing to be taken away mm. and that then began to shift my understanding from a spiritual perspective i want to just to move the conversation a little forward and synthesizing all of that being born in love uh you mentioned that you have legacy trips and that you are an anti-racism educator i I, i've come to believe and i've come to experience that it is our experiences in life that dictate who we are in the current moment (laughs) um and it's really easy so how did you get from this background Mm this this spiritual uh, foundation now mm-hmm. to this place where we're practicing anti-racism that you have these legacy trips and all these endeavors and even the yoga practice that you've talked to us about um really be- being interested in decolonizing because i think for some people when they hear the term an anti-racist educator like for me personally i consider myself that as well i'm a baby anti-racism educator like i'm still learning i am on the journey it's not a place that i'm going to arrive at necessarily but it's not also it's not necessarily the the conversations that bring me the most joy because of that foundation place being that we are rooted in love and so i dream of being at a place where i don't have to talk about what it means to be anti-racist one day like yeah right and but how are you showing up now in in that being and sustaining the energy and your spiritual and mental health with your work, your anti-racism work, the yoga work? How does all that integrate? Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here, let me tell you something that was flowing through my brain when you were talking that I just wondered about. I want to hear that, but Tommy, I'm going to come back and answer the question. I apologize. No, no, I like, but I was like, I was going, I was like, this, we're going to need a minute for this one. But. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Becca. 
Okay, well, I'll just, maybe this will intermix with Tommy's as well. (laughs) But you were saying all of that. And I too was brought up in the evangelical, well, evangelical fundamentalism. And I just thought, if we're taught we're worth nothing without grace, if we're born in sin, Mm -hmm. if we don't deserve to be here, Mm -hmm. and then we live in a culture that tells you because of the melanin in your skin daily, those same things, but not in the religious context. Mm-hmm. How traumatizing, mm-hmm. how much more traumatizing, I can only imagine. White people, I want you to hear that. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of, if you are white and listening right now, I'm sure a lot of you who grew up in the fundamental evangelical background can relate to what Tina said. But now I want you to add on to that the fact that the color of your skin tells you the same thing. Or the people in your country, because of the color and your your skin tells you the same thing. I was, um, and I believe that we are in in American society, there are so many points of authority and power that are put in place, which basically reinforces over and over again that power is always outside of you and power is always something else and that you don't have any power. We don't have power. And and that power is something um, reserved for and never Mm -hmm. embodied, never in, not not for me. Um, I think, I think there's a lot there. I think there is, you know, in the church, there are the, there's the hierarchy of, you know, God Mm -hmm. and angels, and then you got your preacher and then you, mm-hmm. you know you have all of that, right? Um, and in the exact right. Let me let me finish it. Right, all the way to the, through the hierarchy of then. There's the husband who is the head of the of the home, and then you've got the wife, and you've got the kids, and so there's this hierarchy. And then when we look at the social structure of white supremacy, there is white at the top, and there's black at the bottom, mm-hmm. and there's everything else in between. And mm-hmm. your power is determined by your proximity to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so women and our role to speak to those gender roles as wives in a, um, evangelical um, background is, and from a biblical perspective, the women's role being in the home, the women's role being to submit to her husband. And, you know, I understand there's very, there's a variety of interpretations of, of, of submission. And I, and, you know, I also, I can even, I can hear in my head, all of the preaching and the teaching that I've had over the years about how, well, there's submission example, examples of submission and everything you go to your work, you're submissive to your boss and, you know, all of those justifications for, for why the husband is the decision maker and the head of the household and not, you know, all of these things. And then when we look at society from the perspective of racism and the structure of power, social institutional power and race prejudice and the ways that as a black woman in this country, the ways that I experience covert and overt racism on a daily and regular basis, right? And the ways that we all are affected by systemic and institutionalized racism, um, the ways that white supremacy harms all of us. Um, I, you know, I, I guess to kind of bring it back to how I, I transitioned from where that background, right, to where yep. I am in, in this moment, 
um, in the ways that I show up with regards to racial justice and dismantling racism and white supremacy and the education of that, the facilitation of those conversations. Um, it, it had to do with, I think it started from understanding that I was born in love. I mean, it didn't really just start there because of course it started before that. And, and, and there comes a point where we, we have to look at our worth and what, what, where is our value? Where is our intrinsic value as, as human beings? And do we believe that we have worth? Do we believe that we deserve to be free? And do we believe that freedom just looks like no physical shackles or is freedom or lack of freedom something else and something more? Mm. Why do I not feel free if I'm not able to have money in the bank after I finish paying all the bills when I get paid, right? It, mm -hmm. not, I'm not, we're not, we're not living free in a society where we're living paycheck to paycheck. And really, especially with what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19, yeah. all of us are looking at our freedom a little differently. This doesn't feel free. All of a sudden I saw a meme and I love Tommy, how you even referenced, you know, we use humor sometimes just to cope. And I saw a meme the other day. There's so many really rich memes going on right now. Um, but one of them referenced how before COVID-19, all we wanted to do was Netflix and chill. All we wanted to do is be at the house and not go anywhere. And all of a sudden now that the suggestion is coming that we socially distance ourselves. And now all of a sudden we, we want to reserve the right as Americans to go out and lick whatever we want outside of our house. <laughs> Freedom all of a sudden looks different, right? It feels different. Right, right. I think, you know, for me, it was this, it, it was, I, I got to this place of really feeling called to, knowing that I've been called to have brave conversations around racism and dismantling it first on a personal level and then affecting it in, our, in my home, in my community, and then beyond. And I think it all just kind of began with kind of my unraveling from the church, which then led to unraveling in my marriage, which then led to unraveling from a social perspective inside of corporations um, and recognizing what white supremacy is and what it's been doing and how I have been participating and I mm. have been and granted unknowingly, un, un, unwillingly, but I have been perpetuating it and upholding it by being silent, mm. by choosing to not confront and not acknowledge and not be aware um, and just not tell the truth. You know, yeah. none of this happens. None of this, uh, we don't have oppression without a very strong, um, support system. And we, you know, mm. it, so this is a matter of identifying the ways that we have been that support to white supremacy. Uh, how have we supported uh, a, a religious institution that has been tra traumatizing? How yeah. have we supported it and perpetuated it? Right? I, I, I'm also always very shocked that my children um, didn't turn out to be these religious bigots and, you know, and just in general, because they are the ones that had to kind of go through. I was an, I was incredibly legalistic. I was incredibly judgmental. I was, I was what probably you would consider almost a Pharisee in a sense. Like I was, you know, religion to the letter of the law. I, yeah. I was running around 
thinking I was quoting Bible scriptures at folks when I was really just knocking them over the head with the Bible, right? You know, I was yeah. very unloving, um, lacking of compassion person and, and, and very insistent that this is the way, the truth and the life and nothing else. Yeah. There's nothing else outside of that, right? Until I met a Muslim woman who I thought was the kindest soul I'd ever met. And I just could no longer believe that she was going to a place called hell. Mm. That, that really began. There's so, you know, we all have these stories in these places where we can point to, yeah, that made an impact. Um, and that changed my way of thinking. And this, this, if I, I started to go down this path because I had this experience or I heard this story or I, I met this person who shared this with me. And it, yeah. and if I allow myself, if my heart is open to receive, the humanity in others really is all that it is. Mm. That that changes me. That that has the power yes. to change us. And I yes. think that's what these conversations are about. And that's why I now, my long way of coming around to your answer of your, of your question, Tommy. That's why I want to have these conversations. And this is why I take folks to Montgomery because we have to get close to one another and we have to see one another's humanity. And we have to tell the truth about where we are located in the society that harms us. And if, and if that matters, what, what are we doing about it? Oh my God, that was beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And you bring out a point that I got the privilege and honor of just being about a hundred feet away from Brian Stevenson as he spoke uh, at Davidson College <laughs> a few weeks ago. And the central theme of that message was we have to get proximate to each other to actually create change. And I think a function of white supremacy as it filters through religious institutions is what it does very well is keep us separate from each other yes. and provides all of these others. And so to some degree to be anti-racist is to begin to have to break down these religious structures and institutions mm -hmm. that discourage that proximity mm -hmm. because if you're actually going to have meaningful change it takes relationship it takes that proximity mm -hmm. i love that and i don't you know not to go back to my bible quoting days but i think about <laughs> i think about jesus and how he did not spend his time with the religious scholars of the day. Nope. He spent time with the people. And I, I you know, I, I can take lessons and I can, you know, we, I learn things in a, a variety of ways. And I love that you brought Brian Stevenson into this conversation because I am a, of course, an admirer of his and I consider myself to be a student of his. I've not met him yet. That's going to happen one day. But uh, I've been tremendously impacted by his work, as have millions of people, right? But that is, I, I, I talk about that being one of his central messages about proximity. Uh, I think about how I have allowed myself to feel um, and allowed myself to grieve 
um, which it goes to the the proximity, um, which allows me to and and really even moves me to want to initiate these types of conversations and have them around doing less harm, um, white folks doing less harm, white folks contributing to um, and and to being allies to the um, BIPOC community. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know what BIPOC is, Black Indigenous People of Color is what that acronym stands for. Yes. So I think mm-hmm. about how abolishing the death penalty is something that's very important to me. That is a mm-hmm. um, that that is something that I have that I have decided that I will no longer allow myself to be unaffected by the fact that we are yes. we, we are still living in a society with state sanctioned killings, executions and legal lynchings. And so uh, that that Oof. that proximity. Mm-mm. Oh my lord, legal lynchings. That preacher word. Like that oh that's, my lord. that's that's verbiage and language that I know uh Stephen Bright and in the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson, that's that's their language that I'm using there. And I use it a lot right? Because that's what it is. So that's an example of ways that I used to participate. We are participating in upholding the death penalty when we just don't even give a fuck, when we don't care, when we don't write anything. That is us contributing to allowing that system to continue and allowing that practice to continue. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 I'm reading right now, Angela Davis's, Are Prisons Obsolete? And there's a point in it where she's pretty, very close to the beginning where she talks about how we, we have to just recognize that at one point slavery was this institution that was, that nobody could wrap their minds around how we would ever have a society without it. Right. So when we think right. abolitionists, like they were envisioning something that had never existed, that they had not seen. And that is what we have to do to tear it down to mm-hmm. be able to see it. So, in you know, I believe in prison abolition, and I believe also in the death penalty uh, being abolished. And yep. these things, these what, what these seemingly big, larger than life concepts of dismay of, of not you know not reforming these institutions, yep. not making the death penalty a little bit nicer, not making the death penalty a little bit less. Like, no, like all of it gone. You know, we, we mm-hmm. talk about prison reform and I know there's a lot of controversy around that. And, and what, what I am a student of abolition, right? Um, so I am still learning. I'm not an expert at this. I, so I'm, I'm just going to speak this because it's something that is on my heart right now um, yeah. as far as envisioning what society without this prison could look like. Sure, it sounds ridiculous right now because we don't know what that looks like in modern history. Um, but when we look at the numbers of the of incarcerated people, and we look at the number of the, the industrial prison complex and the way that it's grown and expanded and just yes. exploded, of course it's going to take a tremendous amount of imagination and creativity to and ingenuity to go back to a place where these things didn't exist. And it was not some type of pillar of our society, but it's all about the proximity of bringing it back to getting proximate to these conversations, getting proximate to these stories, Mm -hmm. getting proximate to the people and the Mm -hmm. communities that are most affected and willing to see the God in Mm. them. Mm. Mm. (sighs) Just wanted to let that sit for a minute because it's so so deeply profound as we i guess sort of think about 
I'm, I'm so sad. I don't want this conversation to Me end. Me either. I want to talk about your yoga practice because mm. I think that is also, mm. uh, we were talking about that earlier in the way that you approach yoga. There's something deeply divine about that. Mm. And maybe we can tie in some conversation around cultural appropriation, mm. but also I want to tie into that of how in your practices and your legacy trips, as you combine these with yoga, how are you also finding salvation mm-hmm. in all this today? My yoga practice has, my yoga pack practice has been my spiritual practice. And I think that it's important to say, when I say yoga, I do not mean postures. I do not mean postures. Mm. Um, And so I'll explain that just a little bit. Um, Because of the colonizing of the ancient practice of yoga that has Indian roots and Hindu roots um, and has been whitewashed and westernized and um, colonized, when we hear the word yoga, an image. If I, if you close your eyes and you hear the word yoga, what probably or likely and maybe pops into your mind is a skinny, wealthy, able-bodied white woman Mm -hmm. who is doing something really bizarre and bendy with her body, but it looks really cool on Instagram (laughs) on a beach, right? Right. The hashtag yoga every damn day. You know, that's (laughs) what we think about when we think of yoga. And that's not my practice. Some of y'all are real uncomfortable right now. <laughs> stick with us. <laughs> yeah, stay, stay with us. So it's that that is a culturally appropriated mm-hmm. image that has that that is intended to make money and it is intended to exclude yes. the majority of folks and and it's and it's only available to a certain type of folks. Mm-hmm. which is your, again, affluent, thin, able-bodied white women in particular, right? Yes. Not what I'm talking about. That's not the yoga. I do not attempt to bring that experience to Montgomery, Alabama, where we go to the Lynching Memorial and the Legacy Museum. So the practice of yoga is really, it, it involves and embodies the, the philosophy of yoga um, according to the, the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita is an eight-limb path. And there are actually, there are different philosophies uh, with regards to how many limbs and, and two of those eight limbs came a little, came later than the others, um, the, the yamas and the niyamas. But basically it is, it is a lifestyle. Yoga is a lifestyle. Mm. And yoga uh, and the asana practice, when we say yoga, um, that is the, the physical practice. Those are the postures and the poses. That is one of eight limbs. Mm. So, Overall, without me going into a full dissertation about yoga, it is when when I say things like using the practice and philosophy of yoga as tools to dismantle racism, it is simply acknowledging the roots of yoga um, and the eight limbs of yoga in its entirety. So meditation being one of those, and and the the, the roots are sorry the limbs are in Sanskrit, which is an ancient 
um, Indian language. Um, but there, and there, again, there are eight of them, and you can Google them because again, I, I don't want to go into all eight of them. But it's really a matter of incorporating these different ways of being in life. Um, and so that's 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 been a part of my practice that wasn't there when I went through my 200-hour yoga teacher training through yeah. a gym in 2012. These are things I am I am while I am a yoga teacher. What I say more often now is that I am a yoga student. I'm a student and a teacher, mm. and so I'm in the process now of my of decolonizing my yoga as a part of my spiritual practice. Yes. Um, I am very intentional about listening to South Asian teachers um, specifically. There are mm. many there are many South Asian women in particular that I listen to that I consider my teachers. That because I have a lot to learn to reclaim the, the, those roots of yoga and to bring into the ways that I both practice and teach yoga in a way that is honoring yoga and not appropriating it. So, mm. Mm. yoga is about it, yoga means unity. It is it, it means to yoke to bring together the mind and the body and the breath and the movement. And these are practices that we can rely on and use when we are when we deal with ourselves and when we show up uh, and, and it has everything to do with justice and it has yeah. everything to do with um, speaking truth satya is the sanskrit word for truthfulness telling the truth and and observing and honoring and protecting truth and 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 so it it's all of the things that you don't know that yoga is and the only reason you don't know it is because um, from a capitalist white supremacist perspective it doesn't it doesn't make money <laughs> you know, you can't put Lululemon on truth. So what do we need truth for? <laughs> you know? Girl! Mm. <laughs> they ain't ready. They're not ready. That's <laughs> my friends. If you want more of this, speaking of racism, uh, <laughs> Jennifer Kenny and Tina Strong. <laughs> That's, that's, we're going to point you to that direction, mm-hmm. to the left, to the left. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, over there. Mm. I mean, I, I could listen to you deconstruct uh, our Western yoga practices and, and, and talk about these roots all day long, <laughs> all day long, because it it is just so rich. And, and I don't think even in my years of practicing yoga that I've, I don't recall a time where I was taught that yoga meant unity. Mm-hmm. And so even just that nugget right there, mm-hmm. um, we're missing out on, on so much of this robust yes. spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. But then to be able, I've been reading a bit of James Cone lately mm-hmm. and it, for, for those who are into liberation theology, James Cone will screw your mind up because he, I mean, it, to, to have him combine this image of the Christ dying on a tree with also the lynching of black Americans, there's something uniquely spiritual about that. And I, I feel in our country in this time now, um, it's often said that our president, that President Trump, is j- just a symptom of the issue. That these have been issues all <laughs> along, but I do feel like we're in this time of spiritual awakening, where we're returning to the roots 
uh, we're returning to those roots of, wait a second, we've been excluding all these people for so long. Um, And I don't, do you remember Lynn Tons? That's what she, when she mentioned salvation, Becca, um, what she said, because I I found that very profound, but I, and I don't want to butcher it necessarily, but she had a very, um, it, it, it was about salvation for everything, every living yes, thing. Yes, and it it yep. wasn't just humans, but mm-hmm. it extended even beyond mm-hmm. that. Right? You got it. And, and mm-hmm. so once, once we're able to return to these roots, when we are able to practice a yoga or a unity mm-hmm. in this authentic form, when we're able to acknowledge our history in this Western country, when we're able to acknowledge the harms of capitalism and return to roots of what does it look like to care for everybody? Um, man, salvation is the only word that I can, that comes to mind in that for me right in this moment. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you. And for showing up in just the most authentic way possible mm-hmm. this was this conversation has been the blessing that i didn't know that i needed in my life mm-hmm. wow thank you this thank you for cultivating a space where i felt very comfortable in showing up and being myself authentically and that's mm-hmm. a that's not a guaranteed thing because i don't always feel in my black skin that I can be in play. I don't always come to every place being able to feel comfortable. So Mm. I really appreciate both of you for just setting it up that way. Mm. Becca, you have any thoughts? Uh, You've been listening a lot, which I appreciate. But like, yeah, what's been going on in your head? Um, One thing I've been thinking about, kind of going back a little bit, Tina, to what you were talking about earlier, when you talked about Brian Stevenson, and we were talking about death penalty, is that um, I know you were affected as well. When Nathaniel Woods um, was executed most recently, that's something that I felt like our nation really felt, that I really felt, and I felt like we just really need to wake up in regards to how our country functions and is run. And Andre Henry said this so many times, but there's way more voices than there is people in government. But yet we let those few hold the power and the death penalty, I don't believe it should exist. And I'm with you. We, we have to start changing the narrative. We all have the power. Mm-hmm. We do. We all have the power. Tina, thank you so much for holding space with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for being present with me right now and, and just allowing me to share what was on my heart. Um, it really felt good to talk to both of you uh, and share this with both of you. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Tina, you had talked about your legacy trips that you facilitate and lead and educate Can you share with people how they can register for those trips and also just where people can locate your work online? Yeah, definitely. So folks can go to LegacyTrips2020.com and that's where you can see the upcoming dates as well as the co-leads who will be doing those trips with me. 
You can also follow me on Instagram, and that is where I post all of the things that I'm doing, the different speaking engagements, the different anti-racism and workshops that I lead. I also facilitate uh, screenings and discussions of HBO's Mm -hmm. documentary, True Justice, Brian Stevenson's Fight for Equality. And I do that around the nation. Um, Of course, with the current situation with COVID-19, the next several, uh, April and May, events and documentary screenings and discussions and all of the events really have been canceled for April and May. So mm. a lot of rescheduling um, because we yeah. want to be able to offer these things and, and bring them to the different places that I was, uh, you know, that, that was planning on hosting me. Um, so we'll probably be rescheduling those things, but all that to say, you can go and follow me on Instagram at Tina underscore strong underscore life. And then also follow the speaking of racism podcast. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. On Instagram, Facebook, and anywhere you get your favorite podcast, like Permission to Be. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. And thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com.